the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We Get Really F podcast. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. We know you're probably walking your dog, driving, or getting your workout right now because, let's face it, that's what we do when we listen to podcasts, too. But please take a moment to hit that subscribe button, and when you get a second, leave us a comment. Also, the We Get Real AF podcast is self-funded, and Vanessa and I are looking for partners and sponsors to support our mission of opening more doors for girls and women in science and technology. If that could be you, please reach out. You can email us at sueandvanessa at wegetrealaf.com. Awesome. All right. Over the last decade, we've unveiled a wicked surge in demand and consumption of true crime content informing hundreds of podcasts, books, films, and television series. There's a peaked curiosity surrounding the psychology behind criminal intent, conduct, and the investigation process that ensues thereafter. One of the many techniques used to detect crime is forensics. Here to explain this critical element of crime detection and its effect on criminal law is forensic scientist and professor Kelly Knight. Kelly brings over a decade's worth of knowledge and experience spanning across lab studies and training, law enforcement investigation, and academia. She's currently a professor and STEM accelerator at George Mason University, where she's working to increase the number of STEM majors, improve retention rates of STEM students, and help students join the workforce. Yay! Kelly, we're so excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. How can our listeners connect with you online? Um, I am most active on Instagram at Kelly the Scientist. That's Kelly with a Y. Um, I do have a website, www.kellythescientist.com. Um, and I do have pages on Twitter um, at ScientistKK and on Facebook, Kelly the Scientist. But definitely the best way to connect is on Instagram. So, Kelly, let's start the conversation uh, at the very, very beginning. Basics first. What is forensic science? I like to explain it as a science of comparison. So comparing things that we know, like reference samples, um, to things that we don't know or our question samples or evidence items. Um, So that's really like the the most simplistic way to to explain it. Is forensics mostly used in criminal investigation? It's going to be something that you're seeing in criminal investigations, anything related to the law. Generally, when we're talking about forensics, um, that's really what we're what we're getting at. And where are you gathering this evidence from? Can it be across computers, physical evidence on a crime scene? Yeah, so evidence comes in lots of different forms. I think the most traditional form that people see is at the crime scene, um, whether it be a burglary, a homicide, an assault, any of those types of situations. And of course, we have like our digital crime. So you mentioned computers, so the, you know, hacking um, or even 
you know, people who are actually using computers to hoard crime. So like uh, child pornography and things like that would fall under the purvey of digital forensics. That's very interesting. We actually just had an episode with uh, Angela O'Neill of Nexcom Pruitt on e-discovery. So kind of touching on that um, digital forensics that you had mentioned uh, mm-hmm. in investigations. Can we get into kind of the technology um, helping to solve crimes? If you're opening up like a cold case, let's say that's coming back into, you know, that's being reopened, um, a lot of those pieces of evidence have been around for a very long time, maybe preserved in a certain Mm -hmm. way. How long does genetic material um, last, let's say, on a surface Mm -hmm. for you to be able to give accurate, uh, I don't know, information or Mm -hmm. data, gather information or data from that? Yeah. So when we're thinking about like DNA samples, when you're talking about like genetic information, Um, It really depends on a couple of things. Um, It depends on the type of sample. So when I say type, I mean, like, are we talking like a bodily fluid that was left behind? Or are you talking about something that was physically handled? We would call that a touch sample. So obviously, dried bodily fluids are going to stick around a lot longer than like something that has been handled or touched. Also, if you're talking about um, like actual human tissue or something like that, that is going to degrade really quickly to the point where eventually you're just left with a skeleton. So you have to think about what types of um, actual evidence you're talking about. And then also the environment around the evidence plays a big role. So is it hot? Is it cold? Is it humid? So if you have best case scenario, I'll give you an example. So bones they're going to stick around for a pretty long time unless you have some type of scavenger who's, you know, gnawed away at them, eating them, taking them other places where you're unable to find them. Um, but when I'm thinking about like biological evidence that we traditionally get um, DNA samples from like a bodily fluid, you can have a dried bodily fluid stain and you can still get a DNA profile from it if it's in, you know, an environment that's not too hot, not too humid, relatively protected. So say like something off a sheet or a shirt or something like that. I mean, 30, 50 years I've seen people get DNA profiles from these items. So, um, you know, it really it really depends, but it can stick around for, for a pretty long period of time. So this makes me think of back when I was a TV news reporter, there was this heartbreaking story about a little girl who was uh, murdered here in North Carolina, and her body was found in a stream a few days you know, after um, the crime was committed, and they never found her killer. And part of the reason, I think, was because she was left in a stream. So in my head, I'm wondering now, this was probably 25 mm-hmm. years ago, closer to 30 years ago, are there technologies now that could go back that far to to a situation like that and look at the evidence in a new way? And if so, what are those new technologies now that are being deployed to investigate old, old crimes like that? Yeah. So, I mean, DNA has advanced significantly um, in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, One thing that I'm thinking about in particular is our ability to look 
at degraded DNA. And so when we're thinking about degraded DNA, we're, we're talking about DNA that has been exposed to some type of environmental factor that has caused it to basically be chopped up now. So DNA is typically found in a double-stranded form, but if it's exposed to different types of environmental factors that can destroy it, essentially, it'll be chopped up. And the traditional technologies we were using target specific areas of the DNA that could have been chopped up. And so some of the technologies we can do now basically looks at smaller areas of the DNA. So if it's chopped up, it's not as detrimental to the DNA analysis process. So examples of those things, one would be a technology called mini STRs. So STR stands for short tandem repeat. And that's the traditional area of DNA that we look at. But those areas are normally around three to 400 base pairs in length. But a mini STR looks at a much smaller area. So if the area is chopped up, then we're not, you know, the entire thing doesn't have to be thrown away. You're still able to look at those smaller areas. There's also something called single nucleotide polymorphisms. And those look at individual changes in the D in the DNA, like literally one base pair change, one letter change. And so you're really talking about teeny tiny areas. So lots of improvements in the area of degraded DNA, even just our traditional technologies that we use are just so much more robust and sensitive than they were 20 years. Even when I left the crime lab and even since I've left they have started using a brand new kit that's even more sensitive and more robust than just, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. And so, you know, there's always that potential to go back and and try again because the technology is constantly changing and it's constantly becoming more sensitive and more robust. Can I ask a follow-up question yeah. to that, Vanessa? Yeah. Um, so... Do crime labs go back to these really old cold cases? Like what decides that you're going to reopen an old case? So a crime lab is almost never involved in those decisions, at least with the bench level scientists. Normally, this is something that comes about that's been decided by the investigators or or something that has kind of spurred their um their push to reinvestigate a case. Um, I don't really know if there's like a certain protocol. As far as I know, there is really no certain protocol for people to say, hey, you know, this new technology is out, so we ha- we can pull, you know, X cases out and retest them. It seems like a lot of the retesting just comes about from investigators who are really persistent and have those cases that they just never gave up on. And they're the ones who are staying up on the technology and are saying, hey, I really think that, you know, that new testing, whatever, would be great for that case I did, you know, like 10, 15 years ago. So I think it really lies in the hands of those super persistent investigators, whether it be the police officers or the detectives or the attorneys that just never let go. So 
How does it work? Because it, it seems like a needle in a haystack situation. Um, so yeah, if you could unpack that. Yeah. So, I mean, our bread and butter is really the DNA database. It's called CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. And the DNA database has three different levels. So we have the national level, and then you have a state level, and then you have a local level. And so with each level, it becomes more and more stringent in terms of what those guidelines are in terms of you know, what kind of profiles can go in the database at that level. So obviously the the goal is for it to go at the national level, because at the national level, you can compare across all 50 states. So that's ideal versus the state level. You can just compare amongst the state labs, like the state samples. So like for example, I worked for Maryland State Police, so we could compare amongst other samples in our lab and also the other local labs. So like Anne Arundel County Lab, Baltimore City Lab, Baltimore County Lab, the profiles that they uploaded. Then at the local level, they can only compare within their lab. So ideally, you can put these samples in and, you know, you put in evidence from your crime scenes. At certain levels, you can put suspect profiles in. Even at the local level, you can put victim profiles in in some jurisdictions. And so when you process a case later on, those samples can also go into the database and then you can potentially get hits. And so that's kind of where the magic happens when you have, you know, cases that, you know, you've processed from whether it be, you know, recently or 20 years back or 30 years back, and they end up hitting to someone who's in the database. Hey, everybody. Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. I remember when we spoke with you on our initial call to introduce ourselves, you mentioned that technology now enables DNA not only from suspects and perpetrators, but there's also a way to trace their family DNA. Right. So there's a couple of different things that can be done. So you have uh, familial DNA searching, which basically involves like a deliberate search of the DNA database using some type of familial software in order to see if there are individuals in the database that may be related to an evidence profile that you have. Um And then there's also what we would call partial DNA matching, which is a little different from familial DNA, because with the partial DNA matching, you're still searching within the CODIS database. It's just a less stringent results or search. So if you have relatives of that sample in the database, they would also match to that profile. Probably the most controversial of the two I w- is probably the familial DNA searching because you're deliberately doing a DNA search for people who are related to this sample using a software outside of CODIS. But the beauty in it, even though it seems controversial, is that you're able to hit to samples that you would not get otherwise 
if those people are not in the database because CODIS is only as good as the samples that are in it. So if the offender's profile is not in the database, doing a search of it really is not helpful at all. So like one of the most um, famous cases that I think about that showed how amazing this is, is the Grim Sleeper case. And that was a case out of Los Angeles where this um, man had killed, I think, like over 10 people over a span of 25 years. And there was DNA that was being left behind, but he had never been caught for anything. And so his DNA never ended up in the database. So because this ended up happening in a state that allows familial searching, because that's the other thing, this is not legal in all in all states. There's only a certain number of states that allow it. One of them being California, one of them being the state I'm in, Virginia. So there's only a certain number of states that actually allow you to do this. But they did the familial DNA search in California and the grim sleeper ended up being caught because his son had been arrested for a crime that then permitted his DNA to go in the database. So the killer's DNA wasn't in the database, but the son was in the familial DNA picked up on that. And so it matched the <laughs> the DNA from the original crimes matched to the son, which then gave them the investigative lead to hit to the father. And then, of course, they had to get an original sample to to confirm the identity. But um, he would have probably never been caught otherwise because he you know, his DNA was never in the database. When is DNA collected? Is it uh, after somebody's been convicted of a crime? Is it uh, when they're arrested? Like at what point in the legal process, and perhaps this varies from state to state, I don't know, uh, at what point is DNA collected and added to the CODIS? Yes, yeah, so you are spot on. It varies. <laughs> so, so some states have what's called an arrestee law, which basically means that if you are arrested for certain crimes, and there's only certain crimes that generally fit within that arrestee law. But if you're arrested for certain crimes, your DNA can be collected on the spot as an arrestee without even going any further. All states are collecting for convicted offenders. So if you're convicted, then your DNA is definitely going to be collected and put into the database. The newest thing is now there's an expansion amongst the states to include people who are also arrested, even if they're never convicted of the crime. I'm trying to piece all this together because it's 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 heavy, mm-hmm. you know, like especially when you get into the familial DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see that being a privacy issue, you know, like, can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So, I mean, there's questions around, you know, just because someone else's DNA is in the database, you know, does that give you the right to search for other people who aren't necessarily in that database? You know, that's a that's a concern for sure. There's also the, you know, the consideration that, you know, minoritized individuals are disproportionately represented in the database. And so what does that mean for those types of individuals? There's a lot of controversy around including, you know, 
arresty samples, like what right do you have to collect my sample if I've never been convicted of something? I have never done any um, cases personally that involve familial DNA searching because in Maryland, it was there's actually a law against it. So I have never personally worked any familial DNA cases. I have worked cases where just the magic of the database just really showed itself to me. I remember one case, the one case I always think about was a gang rape that I worked um, out of Greenbelt, Maryland. And, you know, there, there were four suspects in the crime and there was so much evidence that had been submitted related to these suspects And I spent weeks testing all of the samples and, you know, two of the suspects were even imprisoned and nothing ever came back to match them. And on a gut instinct, I ended up processing a sample that we don't normally process. So I was processing a vaginal cervical swab that didn't have any semen on it. And usually we stop at if if you're testing a sexual assault kit and there's no semen, normally we stop. But I had a gut instinct to keep to keep going. I don't know what it was, but I did. And I ended up getting a male DNA profile from that sample that did not match to any suspects. And we put it in the DNA database. And lo and behold, it ended up matching to someone. And it just really blew my mind because, number one, it stressed me out because I was like, why should I, should I have this gut instinct with every case? <laughs> I work like it, it really scared, I mean, honestly, it really scared me because I said, had I not just, I mean, I couldn't tell you what made me go against traditional protocol. To, I call it divine intervention. Matter of fact, the person who it hit to was in prison the week before the rape happened. Rape happens. And then he was back in prison the week after. So literally he was only out for a week window in order for this to happen. And I mean, I don't, I don't know too much more of the details in terms of if he actually knew any of the suspects or because they did say it was a gang rape, but it could have been, you know, he was the one that performed the act and maybe the other individuals were holding her down or something like that to the point where her DNA or their DNA ended up not being, you know, present there. But he was definitely on an intimate item. So we know that he was definitely involved in some way. So I always think about that. And I, you know, it it makes me remind my students, you know, trust your gut like that's, you know, always trust your gut. If something's telling you to push forward with something, you know, just just trust it, go with it, because that's why we're trained as scientists. We're trained to go beyond just our book knowledge and our theoretical knowledge. Sometimes we, you know, we have that voice that says, you know, do more. When do they actually go underneath the nails to to collect DNA? Normally, I, I wouldn't get like fingernail swabbings unless a, the, the victim actually said like there was an altercation. Like I know that, you know, I, I was fighting or I was gripping them or whatever. And then they'll do um, fingernail swabbings. Also, victims that are deceased, that's an automatic for sure. And that's one of Mm -hmm. the reasons why I 
again, I tell my students, I pray this never happens to anybody, but if it does, do whatever you can to get their DNA on you because that will make for a better case. If you have to scratch them, slap them, bite them, (laughs) whatever it takes so that, you know, even if there's no um, ejaculation during the sexual assault, you can still get right. some type of DNA profile from from the offender. Mm-hmm. A trail, mm-hmm. a trail. That's what you yep. want, for sure. Well, you mentioned um, what you tell your students. So can you t- talk a little bit about you being now a teacher, kind of uh, informing the next generation of forensic scientists and what that is, what that looks like, how fulfilling it is. I know you have a lot of STEM initiatives you're working on, so we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so I teach um, undergraduate and graduate courses in forensic DNA and chemistry. And I just love, you know, sharing what I know about forensics with my students. I think one of the beauties of our program in particular is that everyone who teaches in our program is a like actual former practicing forensic scientist. So we all have our cases to share. You know, we do the case studies and that's really, you know, how the students learn when you take it beyond the textbook and actually tell them how it applies to real life. And I think that's part of the draw to forensic science in general, because I think a lot of times when you're learning like these other foundational sciences, like your biology, your chemistry, your biochemistry. I think a lot of times students have a hard time uh, connecting with the why. <laughs> like, why am I learning these chemical formulas? Why am I learning these reactions? Um, and I think that forensic science is one of the most interesting ways to show students why we learn science. We now have a brand new DNA lab. So we get to, you know, really do some fun stuff in there and do some research and even some cold case stuff, which is really awesome. Um, Our director is a former FBI um, criminal profiler and she has amazing connections and she always has people trying to get her to to process cold cases. How well represented are women in the field of forensic science? incredibly represented. Forensic science is actually a female-dominated field. Um, Our program is probably about 80% women. And you'll find that represented in the labs as well, that it's mostly women. And, you know, there's a lot of theories about (laughs) why that is. Um, You know, they always say, if you want, if you want to figure out who did something, right, put a woman on it. She'll (laughs) she'll tell you in 2.5 seconds, you you can't get a better detective than a woman. Um, But I think, you know, I think of forensic science as a field like nursing almost, where it's like a a feel where you feel that that you're contributing to something. And I think that really appeals to women, being able to feel like you're contributing to the justice system, that you can see your work through. I also think that women um, like closure, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like filling in the gaps and and telling the story backwards mm-hmm. almost like, you know, like really just uh, giving closure to the families, um, you know, piecing that puzzle together. And to your point that, you know, you're doing the work no matter if it's inconclusive, because if this is all going into a major database, it doesn't what you're doing today, even though it might not affect this case, it might affect a case right. years down 
down the line because of the work you're doing today. Exactly. I know. I, even though I've been out of the crime lab since 2013, I still get subpoenas to testify because I still, there's still cases I worked that are getting hit on now. Like this is a really strange case, but I, (laughs) I had a case where it was a, a series of burglaries and the suspects left socks at the it was very strange. I don't know if they were using them as mock gloves or if they were literally taking them off their feet. I cannot even tell you why. <laughs> I, I tell you, we can't make this stuff up. It's crazier than CSI. Um, but the DNA testing that I did led to, at the time, there were no suspects, but I got two really great profiles <laughs> off of these socks and I put them into the database. And after I had already left the lab and was working full time as a professor, I got a call. They were like, hey, they're going to court on your socks. I was like, what? <laughs> they were like, they got a hit to the socks, both of them. I was like, both of them? And apparently these gentlemen were captured together they were still at it and their luck ran out and they were like oh really well it just so happens we have your dna in the dna database from some socks you left a couple years ago sock burglars (laughs) go figure isn't that crazy Uh it reminds me of home alone and home alone too like the wet bandits that would turn into the sticky bandits i mean it just goes to show that like even something as simple as a sock and you know, even though we don't know if they would have escalated, they could have because a lot of times these burglaries end up escalating into homicides because they walk into the wrong house at the wrong time and didn't expect, you know, so-and-so to be standing there with a weapon <laughs> ready to defend their home. And now all of a sudden what, you know, just started as a burglary has escalated into a homicide. And so I think to myself, you know, the, the work that I did as simple as it seemed at the time, on those socks <laughs> could have prevented a potential future homicide because it could have escalated to a point where it got, you know, it got nasty. For sure. And, you know, as um, as rewarding as this field is, as you've spoken to, I have to think it's got to be very difficult too. And again, I just go back to my own time covering crime stories as a TV news reporter and or natural disasters or anything where you're really seeing human suffering and loss, that's a really, really hard thing to leave at work and to come Mm -hmm. home and to go on with your life. How do you do that? What is that like for you? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's crazy you say that because it wasn't until after I left the lab that I learned about vicarious trauma from another forensic scientist because... I don't think it's something that's well addressed in the field. Um, I don't think people even process it as something that's possible because like doctors, you know, we elect to go into this field and to see like these horrific things because not because we enjoy the horrific things, but because we enjoy the work that we do. And so to even think that you would be impacted negatively from that is something that you don't even like give a second of thought to. Like, you're just like, well, I I love my job. I love forensics. I mean, I do remember probably the hardest part for me was when I was pregnant and I was working child cases and like looking for semen on baby crib bumpers and sheets. And you know, when you're pregnant, you're already like your hormones are kind of all over the place anyway. And I'm like, (laughs) what is going on? 
and you, but you have to pull it together because you, you know, you cannot get emotionally connected to your cases. And, you know, on the other hand, you're like, well, I'm still human. Like this is because you don't ever want to lose your humanity. Don't ever come into a case losing that humanity, forgetting that, you know, you are possibly holding someone's worst day in your hands. Whether it be someone who, you know, has been victimized, someone who was maybe even falsely accused of a crime. You just never want to forget that these are actual people that you're dealing with. Well, this has been really interesting. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. We would love to dig into our lightning round if you're up for it. It's it's a round of questions that we ask all of our guests to get to know them on a more personal note. Uh, And they're fun and upbeat. So we hope you have fun with us. Uh, So the first question is, or phrase, finish this sentence. Women are? Awesome. Agree. I'm going to throw a new one. We haven't tried this one out before. Callie, what was your first ever job that you ever had? Oh, my gosh. I was a vet tech, a veterinarian technician. (laughs) Okay. What was that like? Sad. I quit after my first euthanization. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I cried harder than the owner, and the vet was like, I don't think this job is for you. I was like, I don't think so either. I don't think this is going to work. You should go into forensics instead. I know. I'd rather work with dead people than dead animals. I can't do this. Like, this is too much. Like, I can't. (laughs) What are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? Um, one would be to find a mentor for sure. So I had a very difficult time in undergrad. And I think if I knew to get a mentor, um, and to find someone who supported me, that that would have been a lot easier for me, for sure. So definitely find a mentor. Um, my second piece of advice to myself would be to study abroad. That is probably my biggest regret from college in my younger years that I did not, um, go abroad at all. And I can't even fully blame myself because honestly, when I was in school, there were no abroad programs for chemistry majors. Like that was just not a thing. And then my third piece of advice would really to just not be so hard on myself. And that's even now, I think, you know, that's still advice to myself. I have a toxic relationship with perfectionism. And I think most forensic scientists could probably relate to that because most forensic scientists are very type A, high strung perfectionists. We almost have to be because there's no room for error, really. I mean, that sounds very stressful to say, but it's very true. I just think throughout my life, especially in undergrad, you know, I was really, really hard on myself because I went from being like a straight A student valedictorian to really struggling through undergrad and not giving myself any wiggle room. How do you define success? Success is a journey and success changes depending on where you are in your life. I relish in every single moment, every single milestone, however big or small it is. You know, I I look at success as something that can be achieved on a daily basis. That's really one of the primary ways I battle with my day-to-day imposter syndrome, because even as 
successful as I would say I am at this point in my career, I still have those daily moments where I'm like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. This is too much. And when I have those moments, I try to go back to those small minutes, even if it's a minute of <laughs> minute of success. Um, and that kind of helps me to keep pushing and gets me to the next day. I just want to add, I think that that piece of advice is great for anybody who's not only struggling with imposter syndrome, but just perfectionism. Because mm-hmm. if you are truly a perfectionist, you could easily go through weeks and months and years of not feeling successful. So celebrating the micro successes along the way is key to mental health for a perfectionist. As a mom of two young kids, like sometimes it's like, I made the bed and I got a shower. Amen. <laughs> I am right I there it. with you. I, I am right there with you. I absolutely have those moments where I'm like, they ate. Yes, it was chicken nuggets, pizza, and french fries, but my children ate. They are alive and they're happy. Yes, they so, success. Yes. <laughs> we'll worry about the organic <laughs> foods and the carrots another day. I'm not going to stress myself out right now. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. All right. A fun one. A fun one. What celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie? Oh my goodness, Beyonce. Good choice. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I didn't even hesitate. I probably could think of somebody else, but she definitely came. She came to my my mind at first. Yeah, Beyonce. (laughs) Okay, last one here. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Last year, I... um, I dealt with a a diagnosis of soft tissue sarcoma and I went through chemo and all that good stuff. And I think fight like a girl just comes to my head automatically because I, that's something I I thought about a lot last year. Not that being a girl and having sarcoma and going through chemo um, has anything to do with each other, (laughs) but that's definitely something that was at the, at the forefront of my head. Mm -hmm. Being resilient. For sure. Mm-hmm. We're so happy to see you doing so well yes. and so vibrant. And thank you for being that person who little girls can see themselves in, uh, doing you. amazing things in STEM. And this has just been so much fun chatting with you. Um, and uh, thank you for your time. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.